This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Artificial intelligence offers both risks and rewards for business leaders. On one hand, AI has the potential to improve business operations, increase efficiency, reduce costs, and drive innovation. AI can be used to automate repetitive tasks, analyze vast amounts of data, and provide valuable insights that can inform strategic decision-making. However, there are also a lot of risks associated with AI, such as the potential for biased or inaccurate decision-making the possibility of job displacement, and concerns around data privacy and security. Leaders must carefully consider these risks and rewards when implementing AI in their organizations and ensure that appropriate safeguards are in place to mitigate potential negative impacts. But is there more to it than that? After all, I use the AI-powered chatbot called ChatGPT to write that very introduction, so maybe it has its own built-in bias. So I'm excited to talk to a human being about this. I'm welcoming back to the show my longtime friend, Al Calger. Al is an attorney and the author of the book, One Nation Under Algorithms, The Threat of Algorithms and AI to Civil Rights, Legal Remedies, and American Jurisprudence. In it, he looks at the growing use of algorithms and artificial intelligence and the potential threats and new liabilities they may create for business managers and board members. We're seeing an explosion in AI into the mainstream right now with AI-created art and writing, including the sudden massive popularity of ChatGPT from OpenAI. Now he has a new article coming out in the Technology Journal at Case Western Reserve University called Corporate Fiduciary Duty in the Age of Algorithms. Al, welcome back to the show. What's changed since you wrote your book in 2020? I think the biggest change is more awareness of the ramifications of AI. Um, as ChatGPT and all these other new technological devices have come out, there's simply more exposure to society in general and to business decision makers about the these new tools that are available, but at the same time, the risk of using these tools. Um, I found it funny, even last week, listening to some journalists talk about using the chat function and saying, wow, it came up with false facts that it presented to me as as legitimate articles. And one journalist was even complaining that um, she found an article with her byline on it that ChatGPT had written um, that she had never actually written and it was full of false information, but somehow ChatGPT created it. And so it's like, well, there's nothing new about these harms and risks um, that people have been talking about them for years. At least I've been talking about them since my book was published a few years ago. Um, it's just now society in general is starting to become aware of these risks, although even now they're not aware of how deep uh, the d- depth and breadth of these risks to uh, business operations, business leaders. Well, it, it, it's kind of like uh, 20 years ago, it was about Wikipedia and, um, you know, 
kind of shared uh, crowdsourcing of information. How do you know this is even right? And there has developed a you know fairly decent set of uh, editors and redditors uh, that that go around and 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 try to keep those things fairly pointed well. Um, and I know the same things happening with AI and these engines, but as you say, there's still a lot of risk. What what in particular caused you to write this article? Well, I think it's because I was reading more and more about the impact of AI on uh, corporate operations and strategic decision making. And it got me thinking about the inherent deficiencies of AI and what happens to the unwitting, unknowing corporate executive, board member, anybody that's a corporate fiduciary who either relies upon AI without their proper self-critical analysis of it um, or ignores it because they don't understand it and therefore therefore are not using the tools available to them that they should be using in the, the age of algorithms. And that got me thinking about, okay, we have all these standards, traditional standards of fiduciary duty. What does a senior manager and uh, a board member owe to their shareholders? and in some instances, even the community around them in terms of making proper decisions, using proper analysis, proper bases of decision-making, and how is that going to be impacted by AI? And what it boils down to is on one hand, there could very well be a breach of a fiduciary duty if executives and board members don't use these AI tools that allow them to crunch far more data than they ever could before to make decisions more quickly and more efficiently uh, and more correctly, usually. Um, the flip side is anybody who relies upon AI like it's some omnipotent oracle from the Greek gods and it's always going to be right um, is just simply asking for trouble because they are not going to be fulfilling their fiduciary duty to do their own critical analysis to only rely upon uh, proper opinion givers, whether it's a human expert or an AI expert, um, in order to fulfill their their duties to make strategic decisions and oversee their companies. Well, let's break that down a little bit. Let, let's sure. talk for a minute about fiduciary duties. What what are the fiduciary duties of an executive or a board member? And as you said, whether it's a you know, a, a small startup with a handful of investors or a publicly traded company. What does that look like in the eyes of the law? Well, the breakdown of the categories of fiduciary duties changes from time to time, but they sort of boil down to two areas. One is what's called a duty of due care, which requires, um, well, let's back up. A fiduciary the person who has these obligations is anybody who's going to make a decision that's going to be so impactful on a corporation that it could affect the equity value of shareholders. So normally that would be obviously members of the board of directors. Um, it would be senior executives. And when you get to smaller companies, it would be you know members of the managers and members of the uh, limited liability company or the general partners in a limited partnership. So what obligations, fiduciary obligations, do those fiduciaries have? They can be broken down into a duty of due care, which says at any time you make a decision, you're supposed to use the best means of analyzing that decision. 
the best way of collecting the data to make that decision, the best way of understanding that data. And the other fiduciary duty is what's called a duty of loyalty. Traditionally, that has meant you don't get in, in conflicts of interest, but that has been expanded more recently to include a duty for transactions that would come before you to buy and sell an asset, to merge, that sort of thing. You have a duty to um, completely analyze that transaction to the best of your ability and to not defer too much to others, thereby relying upon their uh, analytical process instead of yours. Also, it requires on a day-to-day basis that if your company is involved in an activity that could be harmful to society, whether it's um, making food or uh, doing things that are potentially environmentally harmful, you have a duty to make sure that the company is exercising the best means possible to be in compliance with the law and to not uh, have those potential harms actually occur. So that's how the duties are basically broken down by the courts. So pretty longstanding in uh, business law and case law and and really slight variations, but exists in all 50 states and and, and most countries, right? Some version of this that if you're a a manager, director of a business, you, you have some responsibility. So how does AI change that? And, and what are, you know, both the upsides and the downsides of, of AI for those with fiduciary duty? Well, the benefits are that any fiduciary should be able to fulfill their fiduciary duties more easily with proper AI tools. Because once again, AI, whether you're a, a, a scientist or a doctor or a, a, an executive in a company, allows you to have information and data crunched for you in a far greater volume than any human ever could collect, let alone analyze. And usually, AI is great at drawing proper conclusions or correlations from that data, including correlations that a human wouldn't even think to make. So there have been instances, for example, in the medical field where scientists were researching, let's say, the efficacy of a drug. And the AI they were using to research that actually said, hey, there's a whole nother benefit or ramification of this drug that you didn't even consider. And the algorithm discovered that itself. So an executive or a board member is going to have this powerful tool to make decisions more quickly and better. And once again, even come up with alternative decisions that perhaps were not even brought to uh, that board member by, say, the executives, because nobody even thought along those lines. So that's all the best case scenario. Yes. <laughs> but we live in the real world. What yes. what actually happens is, or can happen, in some cases does happen, with um, things like AI and algorithms uh, to get in the way of these fiduciary duties? Well, any algorithm program, whether it's used by a business person or the medical field, is going to have certain inherent deficiencies. Number one, just the ability, the abilities of the designers who came up with the algorithm. If you hire a company to design an algorithm to analyze which of your current income streams should you sell off because you don't want to be in that business? Well, 
how do you know that that designer has sufficient knowledge about business practices and, you know, they're not going to have an MBA probably. They may not even come from a business background such that they know what questions to ask, let alone how to design the algorithm to start creating those correlations. Yeah, this gets us into the black box problem, right? Yes, yes. And then the second problem is AI needs data. It, that that's how it operates. But data can have multiple problems. First of all, a database that is not sufficiently broad may not have enough data to come up with the proper correlations. Secondly, data, whether it's private company data or public data, is imbued with decades and decades of discrimination and bias so that an uh, an algorithm could pick up on that historical bias and discrimination and basically say to itself, and I don't want to over-humanize the AI process, but, um, oh, the, the most efficient way to come up with this decision is I looked at the in history and, for example, in hiring decisions, you hired white men because they were the ones that traditionally have been most likely to fulfill a C-level position. So why do I bother looking at women or why do I bother looking at people of color? Why do I bother looking at anybody that, you know, didn't graduate from an Ivy League school? So those inherent historical biases and discrimination can get reiterated and concentrated um, by an AI process. So so part of the challenge is that AI learns from history, but embedded in history is um, maybe not some practices we want to repeat. So it, it ends up repeating the sins of the past. And it, let, let's uh, click down on that hiring example, because you in your article, you, you actually talk about a company that did that. I mean, the, part of the challenge is you kind of reverse engineer. It seems like a good idea. Hey, if these people have been successful, why don't we kind of reverse engineer what are those traits and how do we hire more people like this? But then it ends up being, like you said, um, the implicit biases are not necessarily picked up. Right. This goes back, first of all, to the competency of the designers. They may not know that the questions they're asking are full of biases. So they are introducing their own biases in the design process. Um, Secondly, as we've been saying, any AI program that needs to uh, find correlations could either find these correlations due to improper design or the algorithm itself uh, through the machine learning process where it teaches itself how to act more efficiently in analyzing data could pick up on these historical biases. And then to make matters worse, uh, once the machine learning process starts, you don't know where that's gonna end up. Nobody knows where the software has taken itself, has machine learned itself to uh, to make these correlations. So once it starts spitting out results, you don't even know if those correlations were properly drawn because there's no way, uh, well, at least in many instances, there's no way to analyze how the analytical process happened. So the historical discrimination can be reintroduced and, and uh, highlighted in some very scary ways. 
And going back to the whole idea of a fiduciary, um, if you have allowed an AI program to make HR decisions that result in discrimination, or you're with fintech and you've allowed an AI program to end up redlining again in a loan process, you could be found to have violated your fiduciary duty to your company by allowing that AI process to continue and to make your decisions based upon that without doing your proper critical thinking and questioning and double checking. So I I want to come back to that because that's a really good um, and important point. But I want to go back to the correlation because as you're saying that, you know, it, it just strikes me it's it's just a classic human error, right? The confusing correlation with causation, and um, you, you talk about how the AI might use the wrong weightings in order to come up with those correlations, mm-hmm. um, and then we get to the back to the humans that are relying on this. So, um, what's what's the fiduciary to do, uh, right? It, it, one alternative is well, I just won't use AI. Uh, but that doesn't seem very realistic, both with the advance of technology and the many benefits that you describe. So how can I double check this when, like you said, it's it's hard because of the black box problem? Yeah. Well, and before I answer that, I want to throw in one other fundamental problem. And that's just AI is never going to be perfect. It would cost far too much money to develop an AI program that's going to be 95 percent effective, 99 percent effective between this hardware you would need to run it and the the analytical process it would have to go through. So, well, that's, But that's okay because humans aren't perfect either. Uh, but, but we have some unique challenges and risks when we're relying on algorithms instead of relying on people, right? Right, right. Because if you, once again, we go back to this idea that you can't treat an algorithm like it's an omnipotent oracle or omniscient oracle, let's use that word. Um, So what has to happen? The fiduciary is going to have an obligation uh, just as if they would have hired an expert to say to them, make this financial decision or do that operational change. They have an obligation to question that. They can't just defer to the AI process. They have to question just like they would question what um, expertise does this expert actually bring to this question. what did that expert look at to come up with the conclusions? Um, is there something the expert missed? And then using the just the expertise that a human has that AI processes don't to say, based upon years of experience and based upon even professional intuition, what, what doesn't sound right here? So the individual fiduciary needs to make sure that the final step of any process using AI is that there be a human analysis questioning it and double checking it. Now, to go one step beyond that, obviously, if if fiduciaries are going to buy AI programs, they should start insisting that there be double checks built into the AI programs. Obviously, an AI program is going to be cheaper if it doesn't have all these layers of double check and transparency and everything else. But, you know, you you get what you pay for in that case. And if the fiduciary relies upon a cheap program and then finds out that that didn't have adequate transparency and double checking, they're going to be liable for failing to 
use proper AI just as if they would be liable for hiring an incompetent expert. Well, one of the core challenges here, of course, is that hindsight is 2020. When we figure out a decision we've made is a bad one, it's easy to look back and think of things that we would have, should have, could have done differently. And when shareholder lawsuits emerge, the the common areas of defense fall under business judgment. How, how does mm-hmm. business judgment, um, how is it impacted by AI and algorithms? Well, once again, there's it's a two-edged sword. B- the business judgment rule says that board members or any fiduciary who makes a decision will not be personally liable if that decision is wrong, if they acted in good faith and acted like a reasonable board member would. So you're as a board member, you're not expected to be perfect. You're just expected to do your job. So the, the business judgment rule is going to say, well, if these tools are out here, these modern AI tools are out here, a reasonable board member would use these tools. So once again, if you start saying, I don't understand this modern technology crap, um, you could be looking at having lost the immunity of the business judgment rule because you're not acting like a contemporary business person would act. The flip side is you are obligated to act like a reasonable fiduciary. And that means you can't just delegate the decision-making process to other people, or in this case, other technology. So if you don't use the AI tools, you could be liable for not meeting the minimal standards required of a business judgment rule. If you do use them, but then rely too much on them, you could also be violating the business judgment rule by not acting as a reasonable business person should in doing the analysis and critical thinking and double checking. Have we seen much in the way of... uh... Uh, case law or precedents around not using AI when that would have been reasonable and prudent? Um, There have been some um, shareholder litigation where uh, shareholders lost money and they sued the brokerage or their financial advisor on the grounds that the AI that was used was too simplistic and cost them money because it got them into investments that were not appropriate for them or made decisions that if it, if a human had stepped in, uh, the human would have said, no, we're not going to make that investment. There have been employee actions brought, uh, mainly in the public sector, uh, where, for example, a school district in Long Island used a very simplistic AI program to evaluate teachers. And teachers were... Um, given promotions, raises, or fired, depending on the scores that the AI program gave to the school board. And it turned out that one of the best teachers that the school district had was put in the most negative category simply because she was so good that the AI program said, I don't know how to fit this within the standards I've been given. So obviously this person's not acting within the standards, so they must be wrong because the AI program did not sufficiently say, well, if they're better than the standards, well, yay for the teacher. Hmm. Um, So those are just two examples of where AI programs have already resulted in complaints and litigation. Um, But once again, the the whole uh, industry is so new that it hasn't gotten to the level of the courts looking at 
what AI programs fiduciaries should be looking at if there's over-reliance on the AI programs. Um, in fact, it's even scary because what I'm reading in the legal part of the world is, gee, how can completely non-human corporations be created and run operations using AI? And isn't this fascinating that we remove humans completely from the idea of running a company? And it almost gets into like some really bad sci-fi <laughs> well, digital autonomous organizations and yes exactly yeah. yes yeah we can just put everything on a smart contract on a blockchain and retire right 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 and we'll ignore the fact that all sorts of uh black markets will be using the 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 sort of technology to completely hide their tracks as they launder money and and import and export illegal goods um and uh, we'll protect all the investors because they'll say, well, I just relied upon this AI program to run the company. And it's not my fault if it resulted in contamination of uh, the local community or uh, health problems for all the workers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, Well, and as you say, it, it it's still early. So we're at a stage where we're envisioning both the tremendous upside and some potential downside. Um, what are the recommendations or best practices and, and, you know, how, how early are we in this and, and are, are there best practices yet? There are the very fundamentals of best practices, which are as simple as a, a human should be the final decision maker, regardless of the AI process used and B, any good AI should have a component of self-checking or self-criticism and um, a means of transparency. In other words, overcome this black box problem of nobody knows how the AI program worked by requiring that there be some sort of a, a tracking mechanism, if you will. Beyond that, not much has happened yet. Um, it distresses me because what I see happening is what could happen when people start making decisions within their own little spheres of their own little vacuums. So you see legislators trying to legislate against AI, whether it's self-driving vehicles or um, the EU has been looking at the use of robotics in a whole wide variety of situations. They're not necessarily asking the right questions. They're not looking at all the ramifications. So what they're coming up with either won't answer all the problems or will actually be negative because it won't address the problems, but it will defeat the growth of the AI industry to make it better. So ultimately, you know, I put on my free enterprise cap and say, industry leaders, um, and, and not just people within a corporation, but those consumer advocates and those plaintiff lawyer organizations should be working on standards that set uh, the criteria for when should AI be used and when should it be questioned. Um, and using those standards, courts and legislatures can come up with court rulings and statutory law that will then set the standards for fiduciaries in the future that are based upon adequate grounds and not just being made up on the fly. Well, by definition, legislation and regulation always lags innovation. But I agree with you that I think we need to 
take this upon ourselves to try to do the right things, try to think a couple of steps ahead about um, disparate impacts and unintended consequences and start to put some of these guidelines in place. So, uh, Al, how can uh, people find out more about your work and, and your writing? Um, I frequently publish articles. Uh, as you mentioned, there's one coming out in May. I obviously have the book that I published in 2020, um, just before the COVID hit. So it was published in complete silence, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> um, beyond obviously what I'm doing, there are there are experts in the field, um, and you'll come upon them as you read things. I think that once again, it goes back to the problem of uh, there's lots of people writing articles and giving opinions that are novices when it comes to AI and are just now thinking about this. So uh, just like with AI itself, you can't rely too much on what any individual person is saying. And I will be the first to say what I'm saying now could prove to be wrong in five years because who knows where the technology is going to take us. It could be proven wrong in five weeks, right? <laughs> the fastest yes. things yes. are going. So yes. Yeah. Well, nonetheless, I appreciate you uh, rejoining us and, and sharing kind of the latest greatest on this. And uh, I think we'll have you back again in five years or five weeks, uh, whichever comes comes first. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. When it comes to global payments, there's no standard consumer or one size fits all solution. Each market's payment landscape is unique and so are its participants, business and your customers. Start with the Global Payments Report from our partner FIS, with data on more than 48,000 consumers across 40 global markets. The Global Payments Report breaks down how consumers pay today, both online and at the point of sale, and projects how behaviours will change in the future. Get up to speed with the fast-changing payments landscape and position your business for future growth. Download the Global Payments Report today by visiting worldpayglobalpaymentsreport.com. FIS, advancing the way the world pays, banks, and invests. This show is brought to you by Alloy Labs. As much as we love talking on the show, we believe that action is more valuable than talk. Alloy Labs is the industry leader in helping fearless bankers drive exponential growth through collaboration, exclusive partnerships, and powerful network effects that give them an unfair advantage. Learn more at AlloyLabs.com. Alloy Labs, banking unbound. Besides the downside risks, much of the upside has yet to be realized from chatbots and financial services. Chatbots are helping to reduce costs, but doing little to meaningfully improve the customer experience. Can ChatGPT help the sector do better? Breaking Banks Asia-Pacific hosts Rachel Williamson and Simon Spencer, our resident AI expert, tackle the subject, ask ChatGPT, and offer the use case of a Singapore-based insurtech firm that's using big data and AI to help deliver their product. Hello and welcome to our bank. My name is, and I'm here to assist you with any inquiries you may have. Before we proceed, how has your day been so far? I hope you're doing well. It's always nice to have a friendly chat with our customers, so how may I assist you today? Is there anything specific that you need help with? If you're comfortable with it, I'd love to know more about you. Do you have any exciting plans for the weekend?
Have you tried any good restaurants or cafes lately? As your bank representative, it's important to build a rapport with our customers and make them feel comfortable. So, if there's anything else you'd like to chat about or if you have any questions about our bank services, please don't hesitate to ask. I'm here to help you in any way I can. That's ChatGPT when we asked it to pretend to be a bank representative in Malaysia and strike up a friendly conversation with a customer. Awkward. In reality, bankers are only just starting to think about how a conversational AI like ChatGPT might be useful to them. To discuss whether ChatGPT could ever speak bank, I'm joined today by Breaking Bank's co-host, Simon Spencer, who is a bit of an international AI expert. Later, I'll speak with Sandra Ernst, COO of Igloo Insure, which is a Singapore-headquartered insurtech that's already using big data and AI to deliver its offering. So let's bring in Simon. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. It's great to be back on the show again. Simon, you have worked as head of data and AI with a big insurance firm, that's Suncorp. So tell us how it's being used there. Look, before I go there, AI has been something that I think banks have been looking at for more than a couple of decades now, you know, as various incarnations and iterations, you know, expert systems and then machine learning and chatbots and AI, and then obviously most recently OpenAI and ChatGPT. So it's it's a story that keeps coming back again and again and again. And you know, at various points, I think people have done some really interesting stuff. Um, you know, NAB did some really interesting stuff with my cyber twin and, you know, Lisa Yarsley, who went on to work at IBM and then founded her own startup. Yeah, you know, absolute pioneer. And I was actually really privileged to work with Lisa and work with those guys over at ANZ to build a prototype, you know, intelligent agent. And that was back, you know, goodness how many years ago, a long time ago, uh, back when I was at ANZ. They were early stage technologies, and in each case, it's about how do I use this within some sort of guardrails. More recently, when I was over at Suncorp, I was there for about four and a half years doing a variety of things, including you know, trying to move their, their AI story and their machine learning story along. Um, what I saw was actually an organization that was really desperately trying to do the right things, you know, and, and actually there's some really good stuff that's been done there. You know, the, the work they did with Chatbot, with Sunny, um, they were trying to add smarts to it. They weren't just trying to create a dumb robot that, that you know, could use some sort of knowledge base. They were actually trying to add some sort of ghosts in the machine and, and some sort of ability to do a bit more than, than to just respond to simple queries. Where I think there was some interesting work that was done, and yeah, you know, I'll take a moment of credit for it, perhaps, but but you know, there was it was there were some great people do it, driving it was actually looking at ethics and looking at yeah, you know, how do we use AI and how do we use machine learning? And there was a real desire at Suncorp, and and, and they're not alone, um, to be beyond reproach, to use this in a way that was actually about how do I drive a better customer outcome. Uh, a few people who have known me have used me, you know, heard me talk about, you know, the, the gymnasium and the personal trainer and, and you know, about adding more value to the experience, not just being transactional, which is obviously what a gymnasium tends to be. And and there was a real desire at Suncorp, and I think still is, a, a real desire to be beyond approach and use these technologies in a way that actually drives better outcomes for customers. And I think that's that's a path to goodness. Obviously, where we are right now, though, is it's really still early stages, and they, and they are very cautious about what they do and how they explore this, uh, because you know it's easy for these things to go wrong. Yeah, well, we've reached out to a number of bankers for this episode, and no one was comfortable yet talking about how they might use Chat ChatGPT in, in in particular. One person did say to us, since Chat GPT correlates probable answers as opposed to finding an exact truth. 
are you saying that that could be a deal breaker for using it in any meaningful way for customers, at least for now? Because, for example, you can't infer probable financial information. Your bank balance is either $100 or it's $5. And chat GPT, at least, can't do that yet. So let's talk about where the game changer could be for things like chat GPT and AI more generally. Look, this is really interesting. Um, I was, you know, again, you know, going back in my career, I was exposed to web technologies before they were even called web technologies when it was SGML. And we experience these technologies sometimes in a really early sort of nascent form. And, and, and I think we're seeing that obviously with OpenAI and ChatGPT. You're seeing the equivalent of sort of Windows 3.1, you know, which at the time was a horrendously insecure, unstable operating system, a bit of a ripoff of the Mac operating system, but actually it was a game changer for Windows and a game changer for Microsoft. And 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 obviously we're seeing the you know the equivalent of the first version of the web, you know, which again was a horrendously mature platform that didn't have transaction management, security, and a whole bunch of things that you'd take for granted today. So you're seeing ChatGPT and OpenAI as the first precursor of of what's to come. The difference, of course, is that iterations of some of those previous technologies, like the web and, and operating systems and and, and you know, so forth, were relatively slow. They took you know months and years to give you new versions of them. With ChatGPT, you can see iterations happen in in weeks and days, or even later on in minutes and and, and even less. So we could see iterations of these technologies mature quite rapidly. It's interesting. Somebody said to me, oh, I'm an expert in ChatGPT. And I go, uh, it's only been around a short period of time. I'm not sure that you really can use that term. But but I think we will see um, a very rapid maturation. We also need to see these things for what they will become rather than what they are right now. And also work within the guardrails. Like you wouldn't have built an air traffic control system on Windows 3.1. I'm sure someone probably tried to. It probably was disastrous. Um so there are some things you should, probably shouldn't be trying to use ChatGPT, use ChatGPT for. Um, but there are definitely things you could use it for right now. Yeah, summarizing documents, producing you know an understanding of the, of the context of things. A lot of organisations have been looking at AI and and machine learning to help understand next best conversation, and they tend to use very transactional um, sort of signals to try to figure out what we should talk to the customer next about. With ChatGPT, you can have a much richer understanding of of the customer's experience, the, the sorts of contents they might want to be you know, consume, the right way to deliver a message, and then synthesize the correct message and personalize that message. So, I think we'll start to see ChatGPT used um, with personalization, with ways to frame the right message. If you're going to turn someone down for a loan, or turn someone or, or approve someone, you know, you can actually put the message in a way that they will understand, or, or at least give them perspective that will go. Actually, that wasn't a negative experience. That was actually a personal, a coaching experience. Again, going back to that personal trainer. So, I do think that organisations should be looking very closely at this. You know, we've had a decade of, or two decades really, of organizations building what I've tend to describe as dumb veneers against even dumber backends. You know, they might be slick, they might have swipe left, swipe right, and they might look great, but they're relatively unintelligent. They're transactional. I think we're going to now see a decade of people building very sophisticated experiences, potentially against equally dumb backends, but those sophisticated experiences will be contextually aware. They'll be sensitive to what's going on and they'll probably be much more personalized. And I think ChatGPT and OpenAI will open the doors to those sorts of things. You've mentioned guardrails a couple of times now. 
I know you're a long-time proponent of the potential for AI in all facets of our financial lives. But what are those guardrails and where are the limitations for fintech and for banking? So what do you want in place to make it work in this sector, which may not be necessary, say, in entertainment or retail or so on? Yeah, look, it's a really good point. Um, just because you can do a thing doesn't mean you should do a thing. I did some work a long time back um, involving the casino industry and the techniques they use to get people to continue to stay on the, the machines in Vegas. And and some of the capabilities they have are quite insidious and quite toxic. And those techniques have obviously been used in computer gaming. Um, in many of the cases, they came from that world. But in, in, other, in other areas, they could be used for lots of different purposes. You know, there's a point there where that's wrong, um, where that is you're working against the customer's self-interest and, and, the, and the customer's best interest. And as I said, I, I was really gratified to see a good conversation happen across several banks looking at how do I use these technologies to, um, to enhance the customer's life, to be more relevant in the customer's life, to be, as I said, that coach, to the personal trainer that delivers a better outcome. It was based on a hypothesis, so I think you're sound, that a more successful customer is going to be a more ultimately a more profitable customer to the bank, that just gaming the customer to try to get a few extra coins is actually not a good strategy. Uh, it's a strategy that lacks integrity, but it's also a strategy that probably won't generate strong financial returns. Ultimately, I think we start to see organizations say, I don't want to just have a, an AI endlessly try to do a cross-sell and do you want fries with that? I actually want AIs to say, well, how can I help? And if I can't help, get out of the way um, and all find ways that you can be a part of that story and that, that be part of that customer journey in a positive way. So those conversations are being had inside organizations like, you know, like Suncorp and others. And, and I think they help define what the guardrails are. How do you deliver value? How do you help manage risk? Uh, how do you deliver better, better prosperity and better outcomes? And, and obviously the reverse of that is if you're not doing those things, then you're over the other side of those guardrails. Those guardrails are really important in a sector like insurance where you've come from because, you know, you are playing a part in protecting people from huge risks, you know, at its most extreme, floods, fires, uh, earthquakes, volcanoes, so on. Um, I'm not sure how many of those you guys actually insured for. Uh, but if you could program the next iteration of ChatGPT that an insurance firm might actually pay for, what would you want it to be capable of? Oh goodness, how long do we have here? Um, the uh, I'll start my, I'll start my, uh, my timer. <laughs> Look, I think that the insurance companies are about understanding a risk, and risk is a very complex interplay of a lot of different factors. So, understanding context, understanding the larger environment. You know, ultimately, yeah, you know, we're going to see a, a, a risk models that model, you know. Model the world, model you know the economy. They model the environment. They they model you know a whole bunch of, of different financial factors, and and so where you can understand uh, a system, a complex interplay of risks and so forth, you can then manage to you know, hedge against the the things that can happen in life. Um, and and so I think it's it's about how do we how do banks and insurance companies and particularly your your question is about insurance. Um, how do insurance companies provide that ability to understand risks and then protect customers from you know the, the various things that they think can happen? Yeah, an interesting conversation we had was uh, as Suncorp was flipping insurance on on, the, on its head. So instead of you know paying for insurance, um, 
you we we first started the conversation with, yeah, these are the sorts of things that could possibly happen to a business like yours. You know, if you're running this sort of business, you know, the fryer can catch fire, or you, if you're running a, a business with lots of inventory, you can get bur- burgled. If you're running a bit this a digital business, you can get hacked. You know, understanding you know the probabilities of those risks actually happening to you, and then saying, well, guess what? We can protect you against those. You know, here's the here's the hard data that shows how many times these sorts of things happened, and what were the impacts to businesses like yours. We want to protect you from this happening. And when you have our protection, guess what? If they were to have, if these things are to happen, you're safe. You're okay. You can sleep well at night. And and it's sort of flipping the, the sort of insurance on its head a little bit and saying we're actually here to protect you. Um, and I think again, you know, um, using AIs to run simulations, to run models, to uh, start to understand the, the 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 actual type of business you run, and then if we understand that business, we can then say, well, this is the sort of insurance we think you probably should have based around the sorts of risks you're likely to have based upon the unique nature of your business. So that sort of highly personalized risk pricing um, and also very transparent risk pricing as well. I think those things are coming as well. That idea of insurance companies protecting people more is quite different to the way people perceive insurance companies now, isn't it? Which is, I will pay you money, you might pay me out, and and if my um, accident or problem meets all the TNCs, yes, so that's you know that that would be a huge change for the industry. Yeah, AI. Absolutely. And look, I've been working with um, at Post Suncorp, I've been working with another insurance company that's doing some interesting work in the climate space. Um, and they have a parametric insurance product. So basically, you know, it sets a series of, of, of events. And if these happen as parameters in the insurance policy, they automatically pay you out. They just let you know, oh, you know, you may not have known that your your wheat crop or your your wine crop has perhaps been compromised by, you know, 30% because of frost or because of, of maybe smoke damage from a bushfire that was 20 kilometers away. You know, they know about it. And so they literally just send you a check. Um, and so that to me is a really interesting sort of model where you know you 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 have this parametric uh, approach, and when these parameters are, are are reached, you get paid. Um, and I think that may become more and more common. That is fascinating. Now let's get back to Chat GPT. There's a lot of people who are tinkering away with it to see what it can do, much like our next guest Sandra at Inglu Insure. But there are also a lot of people who are dismissing it. And as a journalist, I have seen what happens when people dismiss new tech out of hand and think it's not coming for their jobs because generally it always does. Simon, what should people be watching closely with this new application? I think we're seeing ChatGPT as a prototype. It's, It's running within a sandbox. It has lots and lots of limitations. It's it's running within a sandbox deliberately. They don't they don't want it to start start trawling the entire internet and, and becoming so dynamic and, and sort of polymorphic where it it just it is is changing and evolving too rapidly. So so you have to see it for where it is. It's an experiment right now. Um, Coming a very strange experience like thing. Very much. Um, it, there's, there's lots of companies building really interesting integrations. Yeah, I think we, we, so we'll see a flood of, of people experimenting around an experiment, and, and that's great. Um, but we're also going to see a point in a very not-so-distant future when this thing is, is live. It's connected to the internet. It's connected to news feeds. It's connected to weather. It's connected to contextual information. 
And now it's also a, a, a production platform with five nights of availability and a pricing model that is, is somewhat locked in. So people can now build an economy around these technologies. We're not there yet, but we're not far off it either. Um, and so that's a point to watch. When this thing goes live and it's connected to the internet, this is going to explode uh, in, in a way that's, you know, maybe people might say it's already exploded and that's actually not the case. It's This is just, you know, the early starts. I do think this the use of open AI, the use of AI in general, will be as profound as the rollout of the internet, the rollout of the of the, of the web. Um, yeah, it, it is a profound shift. It, these things also are not isolated. You know, the semantic web, the that web that describes itself, the distributed web, yeah, the Web three story. All of these things are actually connected together, and we'll start to see some really interesting things. You know, uh, we also will start to see businesses that are just an AI. You know, and in, in some areas already, we see countries recognizing AIs as corporations or as persons. You know, Estonia recognizes AI as a person. So you could actually have a business that's not owned by a person, or maybe it's owned by a, bo- a person somewhere as, as a board, but it's run as, a, as an independent, autonomous enterprise, uh, providing a variety of products. It could provide software engineering products. It could provide knowledge management products. It could provide stock and financial advice products. It could provide insurance products. It could provide e-commerce products. And this doesn't, there is actually no human involved other than maybe a shareholder or an oversight. So, so these, these things are coming quite quickly. They, they already exist, but I think they'll start to mature rapidly. In that context, you know, AI has a lot of precedent to learn from uh, when it comes to corporate behavior. How do you make an AI which um, is a good corporate citizen? There's, you know, how do you make it so it's not going to be learning from, it's not going to be reading barbarians at the gate and then learning from, <laughs> from, from that. And it's not going to be taking the Exxon model and going, hmm, all right, let's do that. There's a whole podcast that we should do at some point around the future of reg tech and the, and the future of regulation and oversight, because I think the future is actually AI, you know, that, that, uh, APRA, um, and you know they literally have a set of, of agents that run across a bank or an insurance company, and they're looking for particular events and transactions and profiles, and they're continuously profiling the state of the um, you know of the financial services organisation in real time. Um, they're looking for risks, and they're looking for areas where potentially we can optimise and improve. You know that's the ultimate future. We're we're not there yet, but it's coming. And if if you're working in sort of in in the reg area, I think. You, it would become clear that over time, the amount of data that the regulators are requiring is as we continue to go from you know quarterly to monthly to you know continuous data feeds of, of summary information to ultimately you know a shift to actually just just give us access. Our AI is it's going to trawl through your your core systems and understand sort of any risks. And if we see something, we'll let you guys know first so you can fix it. But if you don't fix it, again, guess what? We're going to raise raise some red flags, or maybe we'll throttle your business a little bit in some way to to, to manage those risks. So definitely, I think you know, that AIs will act uh, and, and agents will act as you know sort of guardrails as well over you know sort of what sort of transactions are acceptable or what sort of behaviours are acceptable. Thank you, Simon. It's always lovely chatting about the potential of AI with you. Thank you very much. Great to be back. If Simon is a futurist when it comes to AI, our next guest is using it in her everyday work life. Sandra Ernst is a German expat with a master's in Arabic and Islamic finance. 
This led her to Malaysia, where she worked in the Sharia-compliant private equity real estate sector. And she's been in Singapore with her family since 2016, where she now works with Igloo Insure, a company founded by former Grab CTO, Weizhou. Igloo is a platform that makes digital insurance products. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you for having me. Now we can start talking about Igloo. Can you tell me, can you tell us about it, what it does, and how it currently uses AI to be a competitive player in the industry? So Igloo is a Singapore headquartered, a Southeast Asia focused full stack insured tech company uh, with the pain to make insurance uh, simple, affordable. Um, and painless. The way we use AI, I think, um, as a as a tech company, we we have been exploring it um, ever since we we started to make uh, human processes or to re- replace human processes completely, or to complement them. Which means that we we use AI from the claims journey, for example, to the underwriting journey, and also the the risk journey. To give a couple of specific examples, what that means to us, like when I speak of the claims journey, it's basically making the claim process much more efficient and automated. So we have products where instead of of a, a team member like looking at the claims and assessing them uh, there would be like a rule based approach a rule based ai approach that would assess the claim uh, based on parameters that we define and then make a decision on that uh, so that is one of the use cases when i speak of the the risk management or underwriting that is another one where we basically assess the risk of an individual policyholder uh, also based on various factors and then we can price in the individual risk and we have also tried out uh, AI usage uh, where I think one of the the typical examples is for example for car insurance right in the past you would insure the the driver based on the the risk according to the age and like some other factors you looked into well, now the newer use cases are looking at, at driving behavior of that uh, driver. Where are they driving? How fast are they driving? What time of the day are they driving uh, to assess the risk there as well based on that? Have you looked at anything incorporating any kind of climate change things into your insure tech? A really interesting question because we actually just launched a weather insurance product in uh, Vietnam. Um, which sits on on the blockchain and uh, it's basically a completely automated insurance product um, where from the moment the the farmers sign up for it, um, that's where the whole automation and rule-based approach and like smart contract journey starts. Um, So we are integrated into weather monitoring stations, uh, pull the data from there. And then the moment... um, uh, um, there, there are specific periods that we assess the data, and uh, if the data is or the weather fall is below or above a certain level, we would automatically um, make the decision on the claim, and then the claim would be paid out. Um, so that's a, a great use case as well, right? Where it's around automated decision making, um, and you you simplify the whole end to end process for for a product. There have been like smaller projects where people were were testing it, but it's uh, it's still a very very new concept, and uh, I think it's really one where um, myself, uh, a big part of the team, where you know we are really excited about it. Let's talk about the new AI kid on the block, and that's Chat GPT. Have you been playing around with this? 
within wow. your business? <laughs> uh, so I love it. Um, I have been playing around with it for a while. And uh, I I don't know how much you have tried it, but uh, you know it's uh, it's beautiful in a in a sense that it's like having a conversation with with an expert, right? While also being aware where the shortcomings or the limitations are. Like I, I think the um, where it's amazing to use and where I have used it for my for my day to day work as well is um, for asking for, for getting specific information for getting started you know when I work on on a policy or like a, a process and I just don't want to do that initial work to to put down the structure and the initial thoughts um it's fantastic for that I've also explored uh, using it in other areas like yesterday at an event and I uh, talked to people and they're actually using it for their compliance um, where they are starting to integrate uh, natural language processing technologies like ChatGPT in their um, compliance um, portals or like everything that is being stored in Confluence, for example. And then it's uh, instead of basically having, you know, when you have a question about compliance, can we do this? Can we not do that? What is our rule around that? And like having to Google and having to find exactly the key terms that would be used in compliance, you can use um, the equivalent of ChatGPT and you can just ask a question the way you would ask a colleague um, and they would recognize, right? Okay, you're not using 100, like one-to-one the, the same wording, but you're referring to that. And instead of them pointing you to section uh, 10.5 a point three or so and say read it yourself they would say you know like this is the response to your question right like you can do this or you cannot do that um, so massive um, improvement or potential improvement there as well for work I think where it's around helping us to be better at at writing at initial uh, policy creation at uh, compliance with the policies that we already have in place. Um, I think where the shortcomings still are, at least the the ones that I'm also seeing as legal compliance questions. I have asked things where I knew exactly the answer was was different, and it very confidently gave me the wrong answer. And I tried to find out where it did get that wrong answer from, and I mentioned it. I was like you know, from what I know, this is the answer. And it was like, yeah, you are right. Sorry for giving you the wrong information earlier. But I couldn't understand why it would have given me then for the wrong information earlier. And I think that's where, you know, we need to be very careful. It's great for initial research, but everything it says still needs to be verified. Yeah, it's for things like compliance and legal issues and accounting issues, I imagine, as well. You know, it's trawling the entire internet. It's not trawling just a legal database or a medical database or an accounting database. And so there is going to be misinformation out there that ChatGPT picks up and, as you say, very confidently says, this is your answer. How are you reckoning at the moment with the time limit? Because, of course, the data is not up to date. Mm -hmm. Its Learnings are not up to date. They stop in 2021, I believe. And I imagine with compliance, this is an area where you also need very up-to-date information. So have you run into that roadblock at all yet? Yeah, so I, I would never use it um, to, to try to get up-to-date information. I think I would uh, I would really use it for simpler tasks there. And I think where I see a, a very big potential advantage is like once you have to find your compliance policies, once you already know them uh, for, for internal usage and for making compliance a bit more, uh, more natural, more like, um, integrated more in, in processes, right? Like it's one thing to have policies 
uh, drafted, but then no one looks at them ever. Um, and you might have inconsistencies across policies that you can't detect unless you have a very smart uh, language processing tool that also helps you identify that. There have been technologies like that also before already, but I think um, looking at what chat GPT can do, it's just a different level and it's so much more accessible, right? Let's look at the blue sky possibilities for chat GPT 2.0, 5.0, and all of its uh, successes within the insure tech and fintech industries. What do you imagine it could do for your industry? Um, so I think a lot of it, and also because these are the use cases I'm currently looking into it, are that operational efficiency of, uh, of nicer better customer servicing, more standardized customer servicing, right? Like if you have- How so? If you have a hundred different customer servicing agent, um, depending on how strong your training is and how long the people have been with the company, I'm sure they would handle things slightly differently. So you might not have the same level of, of brand recognition, of like service level as you can do if you use technology that that helps you with that. It could also be like identifying, right? Like where are um, cases handled in a way where that's not in line with how we want to act as a company, like customers getting frustrated, um, people not, not handling escalation cases in the right way. That's one. I think another one is really that uh, the risk-based pricing for insurance, com insurance companies um, where, you know, based on the information that you receive from customers, you can offer them a very specific premium rate. Now, that is a tricky one, though, because one of the key concepts of insurance is pooling, risk pooling, right? Like you take a lot of different people in one pool, in one bucket, and you know that some of them or most of them will never claim at all. And then others will will claim and like overall it, it works out and you still make a bit of a profit. The customer is insured. They have that security um, and that works. But if you if you price everyone according to their individual risk what that would do is um is a you, you you might not have that pooling effect anymore so you actually just like price exactly the the chance that this individual person will will access that risk and then um you price people out of insurance right like you have people that fall into certain risk groups and they might not actually have access to an insurance anymore based on certain data points that might apply to a group they're in, but that might not, not actually apply to them. Like they might never ever develop a, a certain disease only because the group they belong to, like slightly overweight, um, being from a from a certain ethnic group, like there's racial bias and uh, bias in data. There's like um, uh, age bias and in, in data. There's lifestyle bias and data. So you have to be very careful with that. Do you think that that sort of evolution of the technology could lead eventually to private companies being mandated to cover people uh, whether they're insurable or not? Um, it could be, depending on the mandate a company has as well, right? Like uh, I started my career in banking in Germany and there actually um, some of the banks had a mandate by the government to open bank accounts for anyone. And the private banks didn't have that mandate. They could be like, you know, you're not a customer that that is actually that we know we will ever make money with. Um, so we refuse to open a bank account for you. But there were banks because banking access to banking services is a fundamental right. And it's so important in 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 any country, actually, for, for people if they have access to the formal banking or finance sector. So, yes, definitely. 
Like I, I can see that. I can also see that instead of um, of applying a, a detect and and repair kind of approach, where we basically say we detect certain risk and you know we just exclude you and we say like we don't want you unless you 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 change some of these factors. We could move to a, um, a predict and prevent approach, where we say like based on your profile you do fall into that higher risk category, but we give you suggestions on what you could change and you know what if you have a higher risk of developing certain uh, type of chronic diseases we, we we say if you do these lifestyle lifestyle changes um we ensure you we give you the same coverage we give you the same premium but you know we want to to help you prevent your your chance of developing these diseases and then you would still have the people included but with you know encouraging um certain changes it's a tricky one, right? Like, because where, where do you draw the line and how much uh, um, can you tell people uh, what to do? But that could be an approach as well that I think is is interesting um, to continue having that pooling effect, to continue not pricing out customers that are most in need of, of insurance, um, but still benefit from the advantage of AI and, and data analytics. Continuing with this idea of the potential problems that AI and and natural language processing programs might create. Do you think compliance issues could be out there? Could they and, and and could they be overcome to make conversational AI work for banks and insurers? Yeah, I think compliance issues are general risk issues that uh, that I'm concerned about when looking at AI. Is um, you know how does AI make the decisions, right? And um, and can we understand that? And it sounds it sounds great when you look at some of the potential use cases, but um, there are regulators out there, uh, there are there are industry um, groups that are defining the standards that AI should fulfill in order to be properly applied. And I just looked at the MAS guidelines yesterday, and it was about transparency in terms of how they make how AI makes the decision, so you know whether there's any. Uh, any biases that you don't want to actually include in in the decision making process, in order for AI to work properly for your organization, you have to define what what ethics means for you, what level of empathy you would want um, AI to apply, and that could be completely different across organizations. And then the third one is uh, accountability, and um, the the fourth one is like fairness in in the approach. And you know they talk about what that means for for the individual um, uh, companies or for for companies in the financial financial space. And I think that's an important one, right? Like defining this because if you implement AI and there's no one who who checks on it it can get out of control in terms of um, it can become racist, it can become sexist. I'm going to take you back to the chat GPT question around customer service. Could chat GPT be an assistant to a new call centre staff member? And would that eventually change who you hire? Uh, absolutely. Like, um, I think for, you know, for certain use cases, it could be completely, um, uh, it could completely replace the the need for for a human and then there are use cases where again you would want to to simplify the life um of your cs agents by having that access to a database like hey what can we do hey how would you assist or how would you assess uh, that case can you provide a template on how to handle that that escalation nicer or it could be like you know chat gpt or something similar they would just 
immediately draft the response and you would review it and then you would you would send it out. Um, it definitely means hiring people that are more comfortable addressing um, more complex um, use cases and that also to a basic level understand right like what their responsibility is when using AI like they can't blindly use it and accept everything that that AI suggests they still have to have like a basic knowledge of of what's going on they need to understand when there might be uh, there might be differences in our policies so AI is like pulling the wrong data potentially right like when markets or, or regulations change like you need to to update them uh, so I it definitely like, you know, people who are blindly following SOPs, I think it's been coming for a long time. Like it started when I started working 20 years ago and people were worried about ATMs replacing them because they couldn't like count the cash in front of them to the customer anymore. Right. That skill is just not really needed, but there will be other skills that will be needed in order to to apply it correctly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sandra. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Bags Asia. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Bags. This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Elizabeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.